Hello, good morning, good evening. My name is Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter. And it is Friday, the 19th of September, 2014. It is a special day because tomorrow is my birthday, uh, which is fantastic. Birthdays are always worth celebrating because um, as my uncle once told me, he said, you've got two choices in your life, to reach your birthday or not reach your birthday. So uh, I like to think of that every year. It's episode 46 of the It's a Monkey podcast. And with me is my co-founder, CTO, general tech genius, James Peter, who is in Vancouver. James, thanks for joining us. Yeah, pleasure to be here as always. Um got a great show lined up as usual we'll be talking about news and this week's news is all about apple 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 we talk about um all the products announced and the apple iWatch, and we have a great interview lined up with uh, joel kaufman who is the cmo um, of bloomreach and bloomreach are an interesting big data company um, working in the e-commerce space and we talk a little bit about the latest in e-commerce e-commerce trends and uh, we also get a little bit of insights into managing a team um, uh, um, Joel had some um, um, Joel had some uh, really insights into uh, the challenges of bringing out the best in a team but as usual let's uh, start out with the news and before the news um, remember you can email us podcast at it's a monkey.com we'll give you a shout out if you email us send us a tweet to monkey podcast follow us on Facebook and uh, please rate us in the iTunes store um, that really helps us um, James, before we get going, um, also excited news to see that uh, Managed Flitter has been announced as a, a national finalist in uh, some Australian export awards, which is pretty exciting in a, in, in a, in a category, a technology category, and uh, we've been shortlisted to um, five finalists out of many, many applicants, so uh, that's pretty exciting for Managed Flitter. Yeah, it's awesome. It's very cool. The premieres, premieres awards, the export awards. Yeah, it's no, it's very great. It's, uh, some nice companies there as well, actually in the in the finalists. So it's going to be very interesting to see how we go. Yeah, so uh, they're they're having a, a dinner at the end of October, which we'll all be attending, and uh, they'll announce uh, the winner. But uh, even to get to the sort of the top five, pretty proud of the team. I mean, um, you know, the bulk of our revenue, nearly all of our revenue, is actually um, Australian. Uh, sorry, non-Australian. And I spoke to a, an ex-CEO of a, of a uh, he used to be the CEO of a Australian branch of a big global company. And he said, you know, that's about right. That, uh, you know, that, that when he was uh, working for this big uh, global corp, that the Australian revenue was about 2 3%. We are very sort of, um, you know, sophisticated economy, but, you know, there's only 25 million people here or thereabouts, and, and 25 million people can only spend so much. So um, the export markets are really important for Australia. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We're definitely a very international company, but um, still based in Australia. So Still based. We'll always, we'll always have, a, have a home in Australia. And um, I think the I think the biggest exports in Australia are the first one's resources. I think the second one's education, um, and resources is struggling along. And um, I'm sure the country's happy to build up some other um, industries. So we'll keep you in the loop. You may hear about that, but um, yeah, pretty proud of the the, the MF team, um, based in Sydney, Australia. But let's get straight into the news, James. Interestingly, I drove past the Apple Store in Sydney last night, and um, there's some uh, interesting, you know, activity around where people are queuing up for an iPhone that is launching uh, 
um, you know, that was launching today. Wow, people are queuing up for the iPhone. What kind of crazy person would do that? That's, that's just ridiculous. Have you ever queued up for... I think you've queued up for games yeah. before, haven't you? I, I did it for last year's iPhone. <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah. I did my 4 a.m. whatever, waiting in the cold. So. <laughs> that's, that's, just, that's just so ridiculous. It's... I know, I know. It's, I wouldn't do it again. I want to do it for the experience, but um, it wasn't, um, wasn't necessarily experience. I think I would relive. But um, yeah, no, it's great, great. So it's um, it's out today, I believe, um, in Australia, and tomorrow over here. It's um, um, well, actually, and we, we people people. I'm going to have to be really professional and go um, switch off my phone. But hang on, it should should this is um, you know CNN quality of. There we go. Okay. Um, well, actually, people are going to be really. We're actually recording this week the podcast a little early, so that's why I got I hesitated with um, all the times today. Um, this podcast is published on the 19th, um, but it's actually we're recording it this week on the 18th. Um, oh, <laughs> and <laughs> the iPhone, I believe, is in Australia, is coming out on the 19th, I believe. Anyway, whatever the case is, last night people were queuing up, um, and apparently they've been queuing up since the 10th of September, um, a couple of people. So um, I'm very impressive that a company really generates that type of loyalty to a brand. I still think there's very, very few companies that can pull that off these days. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, it's a very interesting product. Um, you know, this is obviously the, the new iPhones that are coming out, the, the larger. Um, the larger standard version and then the, the plus version which is even bigger. Um, which is which is pretty cool. You do you currently you currently are on, on an Android, aren't you, Kevin? Yeah, I'm on an HTC one. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, let's just take a step back. So they announced two new iPhones. Both mm-hmm. are bigger than the existing iPhone. One's a lot bigger than the existing iPhone. Yeah. So the the standard version is basically um, you know, most people have said it just kind of brings it in line with, you know, a standard, you know, Android phone these days, which is sort of around, um, I think it's around sort of five inches. Um, actually, I should have got those measurements. I'm not too sure. But the larger one that I believe is 5.7 inches or something quite, quite huge. So it's almost like a, almost getting into sort of tablet territory at that point. It's called the the iPhone 6 Plus. Um, but yeah, they're, they're both they're both the new versions. They're both um, what well, the standard version is is um, obviously larger, a little bit heavier than the than the 5s, um, but it is thinner as well. Um, so in theory, it's, it's a little bit easier to hold, um, and the edges are a bit more rounded. So particularly for that larger form factor, it's kind of easier to sort of grab your your hands around. Um, so yeah, but other than that, the most of the most of the other features of the phones have, have stayed pretty similar. Um, they're obviously sporting a whole bunch of um, you know faster processors, more RAM. The battery's supposed to be um, quite significantly upgraded. I don't know if we've got specs on that yet, but apparently it's um, most people are sort of using it in real world situations about two and a half days now. So um, it sounds like it has actually made quite a big difference um, having the larger larger form factor on these phones. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of the the main stuff. The only other sort of key features coming out um, with this release, the iPhone, is the um, the the payment technology, the NCF, 
technology which was which was rumored and um being NFC, thought it would N- nfc sorry. i believe nfc sorry you're right on that one yeah nfc yeah so which android phones obviously had for a long time but um apple are you know bringing it out and kind of taking a bit of ownership over it and um and trying to make a big um uh, a big push for it sorry who um, who brought it out originally well, it's been out for, for ages, so it's the same. It's the PayPass technology we have actually already in, in credit cards in Australia. And Australia. Australia's actually been quite progressive on it, so um, it's actually very well supported already. You can probably, once you pick up your iPhone 6, you can probably use it in most stores almost straight away, um, whereas it's slightly less supported in um, the US and Canada and, and Europe, um, which, is, which is a little bit interesting. Um, but yeah, and obviously Android phones all, all have, um, modern Android phones all have an NFC as well. I don't even know if I've, I mean, I assume I've got NFC. I've never used it or I've never seen it in settings or anything. Well, that's that's part of the problem of the technology. You know, it is quite a cool technology, but it's got a bit of an image problem. Um, you know, people don't use it um, very often. Um, so, you know, if Apple can kind of take it and make it something cool to use, then that really, you know, changes the, the, the play for it if... Um, if you know it becomes less of a geeky thing and more of a cool thing to do to be paying with your phone, then then that's something that I think they're trying to bank on, um, and they've got quite a lot of you know large retailers in the US all signed up to to, to use their um, use their platform and support it. So of course uh, Apple are um, making you know a, a huge push into the payment space, but interestingly not becoming a payment processor themselves but coming then becoming the next layer so you know providing a device or, or service for payment but not actually going down the, the 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 processor route yeah that was actually what i found quite interesting about the the whole process i was expecting that when apple brought out this technology they were definitely going to be more um trying to have more ownership of it i, I was expecting um because uh, they do hold the the card information themselves, um, and there's a lot of problems currently, you know, with the with the payment infrastructure worldwide. It's a really hard thing to to do, and Apple, I think, really has quite a unique opportunity to actually kind of, you know, do something in that space to make it make it really cool and awesome. Um, but they they are, haven't actually really done that much. They're, they're essentially you can almost think of your phone as just being almost like a replacement for your credit card. So they don't really do anything on the side of settling the payments. They just kind of store your card information. Um, they have a little bit of new technology. Well, not new, but um, but revamped technology that allows, um, allows them to do very secure payments. Um, basically what happens is uh, when you perform a transaction with your card on your um on your iPhone, it's actually sending um, what's called like a, um, I think it's a one-time, one-time code, and essentially it's kind of like your credit card number, but not not quite the credit card number, and it means other people can't reuse it, and so it's a much more secure way of performing payments because it um, ensures that you're only giving that information to the merchant once; they can't abuse it or use it in ways that um, that they that you don't want them to. Um, and yeah, that's that's the main push of it. So yeah, Apple Apple sitting on half a million credit card numbers, I believe. Um, I wonder how much Am- how many Amazon are sitting on because Amazon's the other very big database of credit card numbers. Um, I hadn't switched on my Kindle in quite a while, and I switched it on last night to prepare it for some pr- some travel, and I bought some books, and it was you know really super convenient. I could just purchase with the one click, and it just reminded me that you know my credit card's been sitting with Amazon for ages. Um, James, it was actually a really interesting. 
to our interview with Tim Cook on Charlie Rose. And oh, yeah. That's online. And Tim Cook made some really interesting statements about the payment space and about privacy. He was very highly critical of Google and very highly critical of Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, um, basically turning your your data into a product. And he very confidently said, you know, we're in a much better position because you are not our product. And as, mm-hmm. as we've stated many times, Facebook, Twitter, Google, they, they're in the tricky position in that the, the user is not their customer. The user is their product. And that's where, where this tension arises um, between the different interests. And, you know, when people complain about Facebook and they're like, oh, Facebook should do this and that, well, guess what? You're the product. You're not the, you're not the customer. So they don't really care all that much about you, only in the way that it supports their customers who are, of course, their advertisers. So Tim Cook, um, the CEO of Apple, um, is interviewed on Charlie Rose. If you Google the Charlie Rose and go to his site, um, all the interviews are there. Um, um, they are um, there t- t- to watch and uh, some very interesting comments. He's a smart guy and I, I didn't watch it in, in, in total. Um, speaking of which, James, um, I, I came up with quite a nifty uh, idea to, um, we'll get back to Apple in a sec, but um, there's some great products for actually saving videos locally onto your device which is pretty useful when you travel so uh, just just as a tip if anyone's traveling and i you know there's a lot of dead time and i like watching these interviews there's a product for mac at least it's called mac downloader that i've been using that um um, you know allows you to save local versions of these videos and uh, it's pretty useful to uh, build up a, a library of these videos to of all the conferences um and uh, there's a lot of free content out there that's harder to find the time for, but um, that's just as an aside. James, they also announced, Apple also announced the Apple Watch. They didn't call it the iWatch, I believe. They call it the Apple Watch. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct, yeah. Did you Apple. have a look at it? What do you think? I, I had a look at the video. I thought it's fantastic. I thought they some really smart UI, zooming in, zooming out with a little... Um, with a little dial at the end of a at the end of the watch. I mean, it's still very early days. It's it's the type of product I can see that would can maybe either be a total gimmick and a dud, or it can really some fantastic use cases emerge. They got some really interesting sensors. I was very impressed what they did on the the UI side of things. It's a very very tricky environment to build a decent UI such a small screen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's their their main innovation. Um, you know, in 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 the watch is in the UI. Um, you know, a lot of the attempts so far have been, you know, basically taking you know a larger phone type interface and, and squishing it into a, a watch type device. Um, you know, arguably that's that's the biggest criticism of a lot of the Android Wear is that it just doesn't really work very well. It isn't, you know, particularly well thought out. It's taking metaphors that don't work in that sort of, um, you know, screen. And, yeah, the, the Apple Watch is, you know, completely redesigned. It's not, um, you know, the iPhone on a watch. It's it's a whole new device, whole new whole new experience. Um, and, yeah, no, I, I really liked it as well. I, was, I, was, I, I think I was a bit sceptical. I didn't really think it would be a device that would be something I would ever use. I think I, I'd kind of put my brain into a frame where I was like, you know, I'm never going to be wearing a watch again. You know, I wore it for years as a kid. And then once, you know, smartphones became good enough, I um, was quite happy to to get rid of it. Um, but, you know, actually, I do find it quite appealing. I think um, I could actually see myself wearing one. Um, you know, there are a lot of very interesting features on it. 
Um, you know, one of the things I quite like is um, the way they're approaching communication with it. Um, they've got this, this quite interesting system called Digital Touch, which um, essentially means you can, if both people, if two people have have the watch, you can communicate to each other kind of by tapping on the watch, and it's kind of this silent haptic feedback. So it almost feels like somebody else is tapping on your wrist, um, and you can kind of see real time what people are drawing on it, and it's very. I sort love of that. Personal. I love that. In the video, in the video, I love that where you you tap the watch, and so you choose someone on Facebook or whatever social media network, and if they're wearing the watch, they get a sensory experience on their watch of what you're tapping or you can nudge them. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's really cool. Um, and you can even share your heartbeat as well, which is which is very nice. So imagine you'd get the same sort of haptic feedback of somebody else's heartbeat. Um, you know, you could do that halfway across the world and it'd be a very sort of personal experience. Um, so yeah, it just show, kind of shows the the thought that's gone into this device. It's not, it's not just some sort of existing technology that's, that's been squished into form factor is really being very well thought out. Um, I think the the actual design of the watch itself, you know, probably has a little way to go. It does feel sort of first generation in, in some respects. Um, the, the watch straps themselves look really awesome. I think they've done an amazing job with that. Um, but I think the watch itself um, is probably a little bit large still. I think it probably is a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you know, I probably wouldn't necessarily want to wear this version of the watch but i think the next version would be the one to really keep an eye out for because that's you know that's the one where they, they can knock off you know a few millimeters off it um you know it basically becomes the same size as, as any other watch and you can you know stick under your sleeve or whatever it becomes much more easy to wear and pick up and less of a nuisance um so you yeah, know I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see actually how they how they take the product and evolve it and of course, that's the the Apple the Apple Watch is going to be released beginning of um, next year. So there's still there still may be some. They're not out yet. There still may be some um, changes um, in the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. The one thing, the one interesting thing is, is that it does come with um, NFC as well. So um, if you do want to pay for stuff, you know, you don't have to get it out your phone. Then if you've got the watch, you can just kind of tap your watch to, to the payment device, which, you know, is actually going to be an incredibly awesome experience. I think it's probably, I think that almost might be the, the, the winner they have there, if anything, if nothing else in the payment space. Um, because I, you know, that's, it's a, in many respects, it is quite a big difference to have to pull something out of your pocket to pay than just sort of wave your, your wrist over something. It's, it's actually quite a different, different experience. And I could see people really using that. Um, and it's kind of technology as well that could expand to other areas. Obviously payments is very, it's a very obvious implementation, but you know, stuff like opening your doors and using it for locks and just a general kind of identification um, type device. You know, there's, there's lots of opportunities for it to, to expand in that, that dimension as well. So yeah, very, very exciting stuff. How, how does it work if your watch gets stolen? Of course, it's tethered to your phone. <laughs> am, am I correct in saying it's always tethered to your phone? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Actually, um, they haven't actually released very much in terms of the technical specifications. Um, they haven't even really said how it communicates with your phone. Um, yeah, at this stage, you can't actually use the watch without having a phone. So um, I believe actually it uses Bluetooth from from what I've what I've seen. Like ah, if you look okay. at some of the settings, it says right. it uses Bluetooth. So yeah, I would imagine if it goes out of range of your phone, then then it would become useless. Okay. Um, and obviously, you could use all the other, you know, technologies Apple has in terms of actually locking the devices when they when they go and disappear, and remote remote wiping and everything. So um, there's ways to secure it. You you won't actually be uh, 
wearing a watch, James. You'll be wearing a phone. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, it'd be interesting to see where this technology goes. I mean, you know, maybe we will go back to wearing watches and not having phones. Maybe that's maybe that's where this technology ends up. If if they become, you know, as good as phones are now, you know, for for communication and and keeping us entertained. I mean, there's probably a lot still to, to happen in that direction. You know, they're, because they're quite small devices. Um, you know, there's there's a lot less you can do on them. But if if we get really good at you know developing for these devices, if this new UI and new interface Apple has actually enables people to develop you know really immersive experiences on on wearable devices, then yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting. It will it will be that you know that you that this is the primary device you have. You now no longer have to walk around with a with a watch in your pocket. You don't have to have pockets anymore. You just have to have your sorry have a phone in your pocket. You just need to have a watch on. That's it. I had a friend around last night, and he had. Um he had some Samsung phone watch and he was talking into his wrist and the phone was coming out. I've, I'd actually never seen that before. Have, have you ever seen someone using one of the, the watches to actually have a conversation? No, no, not yet. No, no. I'd imagine it'd be quite an interesting experience. Um, yeah, it was, it was, at first I wasn't quite sure what was going on and he was doing it sort of James Bond style of, you know, chatting <laughs> into his watch. Um, I think the kind of the, the ideal place like technology to, to go would be to, you know, to have something on your wrist, um, which is, you know, your watch slash phone slash everything device computer. And then, you know, maybe like some Bluetooth earphone or something that just sticks in, in, in one or both your ears and, um, and that's it then. And that, that's your, your microphone and, um, and speakers. I think that's, that's some interesting place the technology could go. And also the sensors. I mean, the heart sensors and the, and the you know pedometers and the accelerometers and um, you know all the sensors they pack in there. There's the the wearable side of things is as we spoke about in last week's episode is just you know incredibly interesting. So so that side will 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 also really drive all of this. I have to say that um, if they get the watch right, um, it could really drive a whole new batch of sales into into the iPhone because even if the if the watch is a leader, for instance, I would really consider as much as I'm an Android, um, you know, fan, if the watch, if they really crack it with the watch, I might even consider just just for the watch side of things to to switch over. But I'm sure the Android watches, the you know the the Moto the the Motorola's the Moto three six five, which is out. Have you have you heard anything about the Motorola watch that came out a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, I've read a few reviews. Um, you mean the three sixty? The three sixty. Yeah, and that's the analog looking smart watch yeah it's been a, it's been a bit mixed actually the the reaction and it does largely come down to the the software so far it seems like the experience of actually using the device is not um is is not kind of up to par i mean it's getting sort of you know good reviews but not amazing it seems like people are sort of a bit frustrated with the with you know just the rough edges and and the limitations of the 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 technology at, at this stage um and yeah, I do think it kind of comes down to the UX side of things, which it really looks like Apple has nailed. So, but obviously this stuff, you know, iterates over time. And, you know, now that Google can kind of see what Apple's come out where they can, you know, bring it back into their devices as well. So, you know, it does work both ways. Um, and the 360, the Moto 360 actually really looks really nice. I think it probably looks um, from a from a design perspective, I think it probably even looks nicer than the than the Apple Watch. Um, so yeah, they're definitely onto some interesting 
interesting stuff there as well. They, yeah, it looks like a more classic analog style watch. Do you know um, what sensors the Motorola three the Moto three sixty has? You're aware. Uh, of I know it has um, heart rate sensors as well, so it's got kind of the back sensors that the Apple Watch has. Um, but yeah, I don't know what else it what else it has, whether it can do the whole um, pedometer and everything else. Mm, interesting, very very interesting. It's like an altimeter as well, so it can tell like height differences, mm. um, which I think that's fairly new. So I don't think anybody else is doing that yet. I think that's really going to be there's going to be a bit of a race of uh, sensors I think between the watches and I think in a couple of years we're going to be tracking all sorts of crazy things about movement in our bodies and um, and I think it's going to be like switching a light on into our lives you know it's um, I, I really think it's going to be you know that that much of it's a uh, we're building a back-end analytics platform, you know, like we build for our products. We're building a back-end analytics platform for our for our lives in a way. We've got such minimal insights. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's there's so much power in that technology, um, and you know, we've done as a as a race. We've kind of done a lot to to apply it to businesses and um, and and you know you know, business intelligence and bring big data in that, that sense. And yeah, this will really, you know, enable it, um, on, on the personal level. So yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be great to see how this technology evolves. Um, I mean, I've actually, I played around, there's been, um, there was that moves app on the, the iPhone that I actually used for quite a while. Um, and yeah, no, I found that quite interesting when I was using that to sort of, um, to, to sort of monitor, periods of time and and just the insights that came from that was really and i think you use the jawbone don't you are you using that regularly yeah i've used the i've been using the jawbone regularly and um but what i think we spoke about this in the last podcast about the the social media network aspect of the jawbone is, is interesting as well mm. so as a as a um you know motivator and and keeping track of each other you feel a bit feel a bit shameful if your 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 five hours sleep gets seen by everyone on your networks you know it's like oh well can't can't hide behind that you know yeah yeah um, it'll be interesting to see if if apple brings out something simpler uh, similar as well because they've been traditionally not not amazing on the social networking side so no Whether apple state siloed or not Apple and Google are definitely they uh, haven't haven't done much interesting on the social social networking side. Anyway, um, that's Apple. So two new iPhones out: a smaller one, a larger one. Let us know what you think of the the new iPhone if you have one. Apple Apple Watches coming out next year, which we'll be looking at with uh, with great interest. You're listening to episode 46 of the It's a Monkey podcast. Um, we are the co-founders of Managed Flitter. Managed Flitter helps you work faster and smarter on Twitter. If you haven't tried it, give it a go. Um, a whole set of filters and tools and uh, really um, shines a light. It gives you a whole heap of insight into your Twitter account. Um, we're going to take a short break and we will be back with our interview with Joel Kaufman, who's the head of marketing at Bloomrich. And we're going to talk about big data, e-commerce, uh, managing teams and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com. Helping the world's leading websites keep their content 
error-free. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. It's the podcast put together by the Manage Flitter team. Manage Flitter allowing you to work faster and uh, smarter with Twitter. Now, e-commerce is one of the oldest activities on the internet. Amazon's been around forever. Probably some of you listening to this podcast um, don't even know a world without Amazon. But how much has e-commerce changed or is it changing or is there something behind the scenes that is happening? I thought it's, e-commerce is a topic that we don't really talk about much, maybe because it's, it's on the unsexier end of what goes on in our industry with social media, with video, with all sorts of um, you know, mobile apps, mobile phones, uh, wearables, etc. But um, I listened to um, uh, a webinar the other day um, that that touched on some of these issues, and I'm happy to say at the end of my Skype line from the Bay Area, I have Joel Kaufman, who's the head of marketing and partnerships at Bloomreach, and Bloomreach specialises in all sorts of big data systems that um, en- enhance your e-commerce experience. I, I probably over-summarized that, um, Joel. Do you want to give us a quick uh, elevator pitch of of what Bloomreach uh, d- does? Sure. Bloomreach is about ensuring no matter what site you go to or where you try to do it, what you are seeking, what you want, is the products and content that is presented to you. This is a very big data problem. You mentioned Amazon. Amazon, because so many consumers do all of their shopping or a huge amount of their shopping on Amazon, has enough data to actually understand demand and trends and act on it. But there are no other e-commerce sites that have anywhere near that much data, nor do they have the $4 billion a year to invest in um, infrastructure and technology in order to make sense of that data, make it actionable, and continuously improve their experience so that consumers get what they want, so consumers feel understood. Let me start with the real-world problem, um, retargeting. Um, you, ser- you search for something on the web. For instance, um, my brother moved into a new apartment a few months ago. I bought him a Vitamix. I actually bought it for the grand total of nearly $1,000. Very expensive product. For the next two weeks, I'm seeing ads for Vitamix. Now, um, I was sitting there thinking, wow, we've come all this way and the web is still so stupid not to realize that I actually did buy the Vitamix. I'm now I'm not in the market for a Vitamix anymore. I might be in the market for something related, but I'm certainly not in the market for another Vitamix so soon. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. There, it, there are a lot of different tools like retargeting that marketers are using, but you have to use them intelligently. So the problem with your situation was the retargeting cookie did not register that a conversion event had been completed. And as a consequence, it chased you around the web, which is not a good use of their money or your time. And in the Bloomreach world, we're not a retargeting company, um, but we would say for the consumer, that's just a bad experience. You don't feel understood or known. In effect, you feel harassed. Harassed is definitely the right word. Joel, let's, let's, let's sort of summarize in a way e-commerce since whatever, 1996, 1997. How has it changed or how should it be different to today, um, you, you know, benefiting from pl- uh, the right platforms, tools, data, etc.? Well, that's a great question because some things have changed a ton and some things haven't changed at all. 
So let's talk about what's changed a ton, and then we'll talk about what hasn't changed. What's changed a ton is the consumer is at the center of the universe. The consumer has infinite choice. You can take your business anywhere you want. And because of the power of the search engines, you're able to find people who have the product you want or the, the, the service or the content, wherever it might be on the web, anywhere in the world. And that's a very powerful and a huge change in terms of who has what information. Now, the other things that have changed is the places where consumers are engaging with content have fragmented dramatically. If you talk about 1996, 97, we were still all ruminating about, wow, cable's got like 150 channels and that's a lot of fragmentation. Think about it now. Where you get your content and where I get my content is really different. Even if, let's say, we both are using a social network like Facebook, because our communities are different, we're getting dramatically different content. So the ability to reach the consumer who's now at the center of the universe across so many fragmented channels that can be almost hyper-segmented has gotten ex uh, considerably more difficult. Um, also, there's more tools, so you can do considerably more targeting if you can manage the tools like you just talked about with retargeting. The last thing that has been different, and it's actually been accelerating, is the different devices consumers are using to engage with brands and with uh, e-commerce is growing dramatically. In fact, the rate of adoption for smartphones and its impact on e-commerce is breathtaking, where we have many, many clients who are seeing 50%, 5-0 of their traffic is coming from a mobile device and not including a tablet. It's coming from a smartphone. That is a huge amount of time on a smartphone looking for what you need in like 30-second bursts. So these are things that have changed. What hasn't changed? People still want to have an emotional reaction. They want to feel like they got what they wanted and they got it in a way they wanted it. What hasn't changed is the vast majority of e-commerce sites are still using technologies that require a person to tell the computer, this is what this product is and is about, and could you please group it into a directory and into categories so that, um, so that someone could find it through my navigation, which if you remember 1996 and 97, that's exactly how the Yahoo search directory worked. And then came Google, and we all know how that story played out. So what? So what's? Um, what is the? Should be the ideal best practice um, e-commerce experience because most of my online e-commerce experiences are still definitely nineteen ninety seven. They little mom and mom and pop stores. Um, where you sort of go through the different categories, go through the shopping cart. I mean, yesterday I went through it with a couple of products. Um, I I can't envisage um, having many, many different experiences. I have to even say Amazon lately, for me at least, even seem to be getting it wrong. They seem to be sending me email recommendation for books that are really quite, quite far removed from what I'd be interested in. Yeah, I mean, this is why it's it's really a big data problem, and it's a um, it's it's a need for what we consider to be a new a new platform that sits between the e-commerce infrastructure, your shopping cart, your catalog, and the uh, the presentation layer, your your web server, your your campaign management, and what that new layer does is understands 
Kevin's intent at this moment. Why are you here now? And understands the content of that site so well that it can present and select from all that content. What is the content that best matches Kevin's intent right now? And, and that's incredibly powerful because when you give somebody what it is they wanted, they're happier. They feel much more allegiance to the brand. They are much more likely to return. So what we think, what I think shopping is going to become, it's going to have to catch up, but it's going to become as customer centric, as consumer centric as Google. Amazon experiment, well, Amazon, uh, Google's search experience is continuously trying to improve to be, get you the most relevant personal results every time you search. That's their stated mission. Um, Amazon is experimenting as well. But again, if you don't know what signals in all of the cacophony of data noise that's out there, what signals constitute the intent of the consumer in that moment, you're highly likely to get it wrong. And frankly, it is a very hard problem. It takes a great deal of data and a great deal of algorithmic expertise to get that right. And the way we look at it is we've focused very much on e-commerce to get it right for the e-commerce experience um, and for the things adjacent to the e-commerce experience. But if you said to me, Joelle, how can you help me find the right healthcare? We have not learned, our technology has not learned enough about content and intent in healthcare for me to say, well, this platform is going to give you a great experience. It won't. It's going to have to learn. We have five years and, you know, I don't know, five years times a billion uh, consumer interactions a week uh, of learning. So to you, inform this. So your, your smarts, your secret source is um, finding the right data points and applying the algorithms to work out as best you can the intent of uh, the visitor to the site or the product. Exactly. And it's our ability to, our secret sauce is our technology understands content like you understand content and understands demand and consumer intent uh, in the same way. And then by watching that and learning from it over years and years and years, the algorithms have become very smart about understanding, well, when Kevin shows up and, you know, shows up on this page from this referrer, what is it that he's probably looking for? I think about this problem, a similar type of problem in, um, Food, if, if just bear with me for a moment, that apparently 50% of all foods um, grown in the world is actually wasted, thrown out, which is a, a, an incredible statistic. And I look at my fridge a lot of the time and how hard it is for me to just get the ingredients in the fridge just for one person right without throwing it out. In theory, big data would be able to solve that problem with all the different data points, a lot more complex than it seems on the face of it. Because if I go out more one week um, than another week, the recommendations to purchase will be totally different. But it's tot totally possible that um, with big data, 
um, an, an algorithm or, or recommendations and maybe even tied in with automatic ordering could be plugged in in that type of um, situation. And I guess that's slightly analogous to at least to understand the complexity of the big data problem as it applies to e-commerce. On the face of it, quite easy, but when you get down to it, really quite difficult. It is. If you think about all the sources of data that you'd need to collect just to optimize one product, one page of content for all the different types of uh, consumer interests that may exist for it and all the different ways that interest could be manifesting. Uh, you know, it's, it's a mind boggling amount of data that people, that's not what people are good at. Um, and that's just for one page of content or one product. Now complicate that by saying you have a few thousand. And by the way, on your food thing, if we're going to be all futurist, imagine if you had a wearable and it was monitoring you and saying, okay, what you need in your diet for your health is to have more protein today. So here's what you should have for dinner and we'll order it. We'll order the ingredients that you don't have in your smart refrigerator so that it can be made when you get home. And of course, factoring in as well your tastes and your food uh, preferences and your history about food you've previously eaten and as well your diary to see what how often you're going to be at home over the next week and perhaps looking <laughs> at your at, at your um, you, you know your four square che four square check-ins to see your, your previous patterns and your exercise patterns as well so i mean right. I, I i love that problem actually by the way i'd love to i'd love to try solve that problem i think that's fascinating <laughs> well you have to make sure though and this is a big thing with big data that we all have to be very conscientious of is you if we're helping you at your request it's wonderful. But there's a line that's very easy to cross where it gets creepy and you're invasive. So you found the Vitamix experience to be harassing. You found it invasive. And, and that's where people start saying, I want to keep data from getting into the world so that you know we wouldn't understand things about food because you don't want to be chased around by the three restaurants down the street because you walked by. Right? And so... We, we have to, as, as marketers, as leaders in this new world, really understand what is best for the consumer. And if we continuously optimize to what is best for the consumer, we will do what is best for our business in the long run. And we will avoid being creepy and harassing, which I think we have to do. Because otherwise, otherwise there'll be a, a backlash, a huge backlash, and um, it will set us back in a way if there's not buy-in from the people that will actually benefit from it done um, correctly. That's right. Uh, and so, you know, when we talk about it, it's be intentional, not creepy. You know, let, if you're, you're, be subtle, be useful to the consumer, and the consumer will appreciate it. Joel, you've also, um, I recently listened to a, a webinar um, that, you, that you did with Reich about building high-performance marketing teams. Um, I would imagine you, you manage uh, a team on your end there. And I was, um, it's, it's obviously as a, as a CEO, I'm very interested in uh, high-performance teams. And one of, one, of, one of the points that you make, I really, really like that I'd like to just, um, you, you to expand on, um, what is a high-performance uh, marketing team? And this can actually apply to any team. 
show high levels of collaboration and innovation that produce superior results. As a leader in a cutting-edge industry, give us a little bit of insights how, how um, you know, the collaboration um, within your organization, how do you approach trying to maximize collaboration? Yeah, and, and I think part of that is, you know, what we talked about on the webinar. But the first is you got to make sure everyone's aiming at the same target. So it's very hard to get collaboration among people who are optimizing for different goals. And it is the job of the leader of the team, of the executive, to not necessarily come up with the goal. The team can be an active part of that but to ensure that everybody has aligned around this is the goal. You know, this is a product we want to increase sales velocity and everything we do is going to optimize for how do we increase sales velocity. Well, that then becomes a criteria against which people can choose what to do. And when they're discussing differences of approach and of opinion, they can put that goal up there and present a logical argument about why approach A will increase velocity more than approach B and vice versa. And and what this does is it makes the healthy conflict that you need in a high-performance team, because high-performance teams do not yes each other to death. They do not say, of course, whatever you want. That's a groupthink team, and that's going to be a mediocre to low-performance team. High-performance teams disagree but they don't disagree on what the goal is because they don't even start to run until they know where the finish line is. But when they're running, they know where that finish line is. And then they also have a very good understanding of what is each person's role on this team to get us over the finish line. And by understanding what I can expect of each other as we move to the goal and how I can help my colleagues Again, you you have a lot of, if you will, biologically engineered um, instincts that fall in line. People like to win. People like people to like them. People want to help other people. And if you can align those and turbocharge them, you can get a high-performance team for any function or project that you're running. How do you get the balance between structure and chaos. I've, in my experience, you need to get the balance just right. Some of our biggest gems have been the fact that we haven't um, put too much process into, uh, you, you know, into the workday, into the teams. We haven't put, um, you know, too stringent goals. Everything's got to sort of exit door out if need be. In your experience, how do you how do you allow for a you know a little bit of play in the system um, versus too much play and too much chaos? So um, did you read, I, I think it was Daniel Pink's book, Drive? I've read parts of it, yes. So, um, so what he researches is what motivates people. Because at the end of the day, all a high-performance team is, is aligning people's motivations to do extraordinary things, right? Sure. To do, to do the same extraordinary thing. So when you get to the essence, my opinion, on the essence of that book is what drives people is autonomy, is ownership. So process about how you do what you do, it, it can be stifling 
to creativity. Now, there are situations where, you know, it's it's a highly repetitive, optimized process, and it has to be. But in in most cases, you know, how you do your part of the team should be completely within your control. What your goal is for your contribution should be within your control. In fact, that's why I involve the team in setting the overall goal, um, because they're much more invested in what they have personally come up with and committed to do, which makes sense, right? So, you know, you have to live with a certain amount of chaos that, you know, people work in different styles, different ways, but the structure is we all share the goal. And by the way, if along the way we think that's the wrong goal, we should pause and discuss that. And if it is the wrong goal, be flexible enough to say, huh, don't want to run off that cliff. Let's go over here and make a change, but do it deliberately and, and do it by pausing, understanding why we want to do it and then making the shift. Otherwise, when you're running a team, you'll give them whiplash back and forth and back and forth. So you got to be deliberate, but absolutely be flexible and be listening. What are we learning? So sometimes you'll set a goal and in the very beginning, it's, hey, we have to validate a whole bunch of assumptions about whether or not that's possible. And when you validate some of the assumptions, you find out, yeah, we have to shift the goal because these assumptions are no longer valid. And you got you to gotta change. So if you're going to do a startup, if you're going to live in the digital economy, you're going to have to be comfortable with changing course and doing it with limited information, but quickly. That doesn't mean you can change course and only tell two of the 10 people on your team that you're changing course because now your team is going to work at cross purposes. Eight of them don't know that the course just changed. Joelle, you um, head of marketing and partnerships at Bloomreach, and um, I'm not sure what, what, what's the size of your team there that you manage? About 17 people. Okay, so it's pretty uh, pretty sizable. You're in an industry that's trying to, you know, revolutionize in a way a core behavior. What's the most difficult part of, of your day-to-day job in managing a team in a, in a sort of cutting-edge digital business? I think the most difficult part is giving people the confidence that they can make their own decisions. And even if the decision isn't the one I would make and maybe isn't even the most right one, that they have the, the ability to make it and to correct if it was not right. And, and that's very scary for people. They want someone else to make the decision. But if as a leader, I make the decisions for all of my people, I'm exhausted and I'm only getting the benefit of my own judgment. If you hire really good people, they understand what the goals are and what's expected of them, then they need to run and they need to make choices and act. And if they do, you get the benefit of their great thinking and their learning. And as an organization, you're 10 times better. I think, and and you really nailed it on the head there where you said you got to hire right. And it's, it's such a cliche, but it really comes down to that one factor or your successes mm-hmm. and your failure is just really a total product of your team and um, what I find quite interesting is when I go away and I I go off the grid every now and then just for a week here or there and um, 
it's a little bit intimidating sometimes that uh, the team does a better job when I'm not there. And uh, I always have mixed feelings because I think that's, that's, right. fa- that's fantastic because, um, you know, maybe I'm getting in the way a little bit too much. But I, but I also then go, wow, you know, I've got to, I've got to really always reflect where, where I add value as the leader. But, um, you know, that's always, that's always a good test. It is. And it's funny uh, about, I also go away and I go completely dark when I go on vacation. I believe that a vacation should be just that. And I insist that when you go away and you're on my team, that you get off email, don't call people, we'll be fine. Um, And uh, I'd been at Bloom Reach for about nine months and I had planned before I joined the company a three-week vacation with my children overseas. And I said to my team, I said, the first week, because I was going halfway around the world, I will be available at night for two to three hours, just, you know, touch base if you need anything. But the second two weeks, I'm going to be gone completely. And uh, you guys are going to be fine. And half the team had worked with me before and half the team hadn't. And the ones who hadn't said, there's no way she'll go dark. I mean, she's, she's always keeping connected and keeping things moving. Um, and the team, the people who had worked with me said, no, she's going to go dark. And she's going to expect that everything kept moving. And lo and behold, just like you had, Kevin, I came back. They did awesome. And I said, you know, that's a whole bunch of things I don't have to continue doing. I can stop. They can handle it. I'm going to go do other things. And I think that's where, you know, you can really scale the business and scale the team. And I, you know, this year... I've been looking at a lot of my tasks and realizing that there's actually a lot of my tasks that I'm not the best person for the job. And I still actually hang on a little bit too much to tasks, whether, you know, whether it's back, it's back office or, or any other activity. Um, as the leader, um, it's about putting the team together and, and getting people that are a lot better at it than me, you know, and I, I think I'm just really excited to, um, I still never get over the fact that I do have a team because I started out as a one-man band and for, for many years and it was a struggle for me to take holidays and I would go on camping trips sort of in the middle of nowhere in Australia and I would have to find a little hill that I could walk up to that I could get a little bit of cell phone signal and, <laughs> and check, in, check in with the clients. So I'm, I'm just happy that I've uh, got a competent team but those uh, you sort of um, – uh, as Jay-Z of all people said, um, how far ca- from your past can you ever be? And I still remember my one-man day, my one-man right. band days um, very, very fondly. Joel, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, head of Marketing and Partnerships at Bloomreach. We are going to put your Twitter details up um, on the show notes. People can connect with you there. Um, hope we can stay in touch and, uh, and certainly an, an area of interest, um, the big data, e-commerce, etc. that we'll certainly keep an eye, of, eye on and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for uh, making the time for me. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. James, big data, e-commerce, early, early days. It's still uh, such, a, such a long way to go to really get technology to uh, provide the right intent or to understand 
our intent. It's such a simple thing in the human world. We can almost look at someone and you know, gauge very easily what their intent is in, in place or time. But a computer and especially a website, boy, it's hard to read that from another human being. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting how far we, we have come, though. Um, you know, back in, you know, people have obviously thought about this for a long time. You know, if you, if you have that data, you know, if humans can kind of do that, if you can kind of, you know, see somebody, you know, walking outside and looking up in the sky and, you know, being, you know, rained on or whatever, you can tell they need an umbrella. Um, and in theory, you know, you could do very similar things online if you can see somebody sort of putting in certain search terms and, and searching through, you know, websites, you know, maybe they're searching for umbrella and the weather near them is, you know, overcast and stormy for the next week, then, you know, you know, they need, you know, a good umbrella and maybe if it's going to be like, you know, like thunderstorm conditions or whatever, you know, they, they need, you know, like a, a super awesome umbrella so you can kind of target the, the product very, um, very narrowly to a person. Um, but obviously, you know, getting getting to that point has been been a long journey and it's been, you know, I think, you know, probably ever since there was e-commerce on the internet, people have been trying to do this and, and it was really, really bad for a long time. Um, but it definitely is is getting better. You know, I think the suggestions we get these days are less um, are less problematic. Problematic. Um, I mean, obviously, your example in the in the interview, you know, of, of being you know suggested that content after you bought it was um, was where it still breaks down and those those rough edges still show up. But um, I'd imagine this this system continues to get better. Um, and I think I think it still comes down to probably lack of data. Um, I mean, I think all these systems do have holes in them. I mean, obviously, in your case, there was a hole that it didn't know you'd actually bought the product. Um, and and all these systems are relatively siloed as well. So if you don't have cross-communication between, um, you know, the information of what customers are actually doing on, this, uh, on the internet, then, then, you know, you can obviously have a lot less um, predictive power in total. But, um, yeah, it will continue, continue evolving. Um, and that obviously goes beside the question of whether this stuff should continue to evolve and whether it's a good thing to do or not. But um, what's, what's your views on, on the, the targeted advertising? Uh, uh, look, the retargeting drives me bonkers, to be honest. <laughs> like, um, um, it, it drives me bonkers after the point of purchase. Once I've purchased it and if I see the ads, that's when I really like, wow, we've just you know this is just just the wrong experience it happens with hotels quite a bit as well sometimes if i'm traveling and i and i book a hotel in a location i keep seeing an ad for the hotel as well. yeah that's, that's a good point actually yeah no we um we booked some uh, hotel fairly recently and and we keep getting you know emails from expedia telling us about other hotels you know on the same dates you know we don't want other hotels on the same dates so we're ready to book down booked our hotels so yeah no there's definitely places where this technology is just is just wrong and it's probably very hard to get feedback on that as well which is which is why i mean in all these cases you know we just ignore those those suggestions so it's probably very hard for them to to fix those parts of their algorithms well i wanted your feedback on um you know e-commerce sites where they don't have ssl in place no secure no little padlock on their website when you're purchasing if you see a site like that and you're putting through a purchase do you actually put your credit card details through or don't you um generally no i mean 
no reputable site should be doing that. So, I mean, obviously you've got to look through a whole bunch of indicators and that's, that's, that's a good indicator that, that it's not a site that, that I purchase with. Um, you know, there are exceptions to that rule. There, there are ways to implement it where you can still pass the information through SSL. Um, so, um, that, but, you know, I can look at the code and I can actually tell if it's going to be passed through SSL or not. Um, but even then, if it, if the actual website itself isn't in SSL, then you've got, got, no, got no guarantee that nobody else is um, um, sort of um, sitting on um, top and actually listening on, in on the conversation. So um, in general, no, it's, um, unless, I, unless I know the website really well or the, the person or whoever it is. I've had a couple of instances over the last couple of months where I might be booking a ticket at an event at a small organization or buying something, um, you know, um, on a site that's a, a mom and pop store and it, it hasn't been SSL, you know, secured, um, padlocked, etc. And I've gone and I've gone, uh, I've been a bit naughty and I've gone ahead and purchased in any case because I wanted or and I just got, you know, just couldn't be bothered sort of finding out another way. Anyway, I got a call from my bank a week ago saying someone tried to purchase $40,000 worth of jewelry in Germany with my credit card. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure, like, it wasn't you just uh, after a late night, you know? Yeah, it's, the, yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's definitely, um, I'd be, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'd, I'd worry if maybe I'm sleepwalking and doing some strange, uh, maybe that retargeting works or that targeting <laughs> works, you know? There's something about myself I don't know. <laughs> But it was just so bizarre. And the only thing I could think of was that, you know, some of these sites, I don't think these sites themselves would be the issue, but, you know, these, these um, you know, undesirable sorts will get to know the insecure sites and, you know, just, just, just scrape some data from them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it can also be, if you don't have the SSL security on, then, you know, anybody can listen on your connection at any point. So, you know, it could be at any point between you and that store, somebody could have picked up your, your payment details. So, you know, if you're in a coffee shop or even a home, it's it's possible that people can, can access that data. So, yeah, I mean, SSL is, is very, very important for, for payment stuff. It's the one case where you kind of really do need it. Um, and, that, and that's where, the, where these small companies should just implement PayPal. I mean, that's where PayPal is good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is, I think there is ways, I'm just thinking now with Stripe, I think you can, because a lot of the modern payment processes will basically do sort of a layer of encryption before submitting your information. And I think you can get away without having SSL on the page. I mean, it's possible. There are still some issues with it. There's some good reasons why you shouldn't do it, but it is relatively secure still. Um, but in any case, I'm sure they're probably not using um, those kind of technologies because um, they do take a bit of time to implement. So, And, of course, people still email their credit card information around. Do not email <laughs> your credit card information around. Yeah, yeah, I've had offers in the past for whatever reason. Say, oh, I'll just, just email you, you know on our digital agency side of the business, we'll just email you the credit card. De- I'm like, no, no, don't. Please don't have credit cards. Firstly, it's illegal to have credit cards sitting in, in things like spreadsheets and email inboxes. It's not compliance um, according to the law. You have to, if you want to store credit cards, there's a whole series, something called PCI compliance that you have to adhere to and it's it's very tricky. So uh, you, you're not allowed to be sitting with the credit card information um, on your in your email box in your spreadsheets, so don't don't do it. So, 
Um, yeah, anyway, James, I think that's it. We've had a bit of a longer podcast this week. Um, two weeks' time, um, Chelsea's going to be driving the podcast so because I'm going to be away um, for a little while. So Chelsea will be driving the podcast and um, we'll leave you in the capable hands. And um, um, I'm, I'm not sure, James, if uh, she's organized the interview and, um, and uh, I don't think we know who the the if uh her co-host will be may and um we'll we'll sort that out but every two weeks um is at the moment is the monkey podcast please tweet tweet us follow us on twitter monkey podcast email us podcast at it's a monkey.com subscribe on um, it's a monkey.com you can put in your email address and you'll get an email notification when the podcast goes out um, we love having you as our listener so stick around every two weeks and this has been episode 46 september the 19th 2014 um, thanks for joining us and if you uh, do want to send presents to Kevin for his birthday, it's uh, GPO Box thirteen seventy, uh, Sydney. <laughs> yes, and um, forty thousand dollars worth of jewellery. That was a good attempt. Yeah, good I'm not. Kid. I'm not much of a jewellery. I'm not much of a jewellery person. But um, yeah, it's uh, if you want to send if you want to send uh, healthy snacks for the team to eat or something we can <laughs> all enjoy. But um, anyway, I'll catch you at the other end, James. Thanks for joining us, and um, we'll we'll talk soon. Yeah.